Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to FT Politics, a weekly discussion on what's happening in Westminster from the Financial Times. I'm Sebastian Payne. In this episode, we'll be discussing Theresa May's continued efforts to cling on to power while Brexit remains utterly deadlocked. Plus, we'll be discussing Labour's flirtations with a universal basic income and whether it will become a viable policy at the next general election. I'm delighted to be joined by our Chief Political Correspondent Jim Picard, Economics Editor Chris Giles, Columnist Robert Shrimsley and Deputy Opinion Editor Miranda Green. Thank you all for joining. And if you find yourself liking this episode of FT Politics, then do subscribe to all the usual channels to receive it every Saturday morning. We also do like some positive reviews. Westminster returned from the local elections break to the same two questions. How will the Brexit deadlock be broken and when will Theresa May go? Pressure has been growing on the Prime Minister from MPs and activists to resign, which only grew following the party's disastrous local election results last week. But she remains super glued to her desk in Downing Street. The 1922 committee met this week and gave the Prime Minister yet another week to decide her fate. So will things come to a head next week or will the Prime Minister wait until after the European elections, which are set to be a pretty bad night for the Conservative Party? So Robert Shrimsley, this question about Mrs May's future has been hanging around ever since she announced that she would go in the event of a deal passing because once you've said you're going to go you're really going to go and the 1922 which is the backbench committee of the Conservative Party decided not to change its rules and allow another leadership challenge last month it met again this week and decided that it would also not allow another leadership challenge but it would give Mrs May until 4pm next Wednesday to decide whether she's going to set out a clear date on when she'll go do you think this is going to come to a head in the near future. Yeah, I mean, they're really, really warning her this time. It reminds me of that old adage about, you know, the longest short fuse that never blows. I think they aren't going to allow this to continue too much longer. So whether they finally press the button next week or whether it's a little bit further down the line, perhaps after the European elections, which are going to be catastrophic, the Conservative Party, sometime in the next few weeks, if she does not give them a clear departure date of her own volition, then they will have to press the button because the Conservative Party, frankly, is already in leadership election mode. Theresa May, I think I checked this the other day, in about 19 or 20 days, she'll overtake Gordon Brown. In 28th of May is yep, Gordon Brown Day. And then the day the after it's the Duke of Wellington. So she can overtake two prime ministers if she can just hang on till the end of May. And these things matter to prime ministers. On the other hand, you'd have to ask what exactly she's been doing all this time to justify being prime minister in a way. So the simple answer to your question, Seb, is we are coming to the end. Will they actually press the button next week? I think they'd much rather she chose to pick up the pearl-handled revolver and shoot herself, as it were. But in the end, they won't let this go on for too much longer. The issue, Miranda Green, though, is that 
the Conservative Party can pile political pressure on Theresa May. You know, the activists are doing that. On the 15th of June, they're going to hold this extraordinary general meeting of the Conservative Party, which I don't think anyone could ever remember that happening before, where it's likely that a no-confidence motion in the PM will pass. We've seen this week more MPs standing up saying, you need to go, Prime Minister, but they still lack that formal mechanism to push her out. And it's really going to come down to these two things. Does the Cabinet turn on her? And we saw George Osborne. Osborne, the former Chancellor and notable critic of Mrs May, saying the Cabinet should turn on her. And it's going to be, does the 1922 committee change the rules? And there's a lot of hesitancy for them doing that, because once you just decide to change the goalpost during prime ministerial term in office, it doesn't set a particularly good precedent. But as Robert said, things look as if they might be about to come to a head. And maybe that pressure does just become too much. Well, it's interesting to try and work out whether this is the time when finally us all deciding the situation was untenable means that it really is untenable because it's been months now and actually back when Brexit Day on the 29th of March came and gone and we didn't leave the EU and then afterwards the delay to October the 31st which looked like a terrible humiliation for her when she returned from securing that delay from the rest of the EU. You know there have been moments when you've just thought this is ridiculous. One or other side will act. Famously Conservative prime ministers are generally hustled out by the people who are known as the men in the grey suits who go in and basically say, we can't allow you to remain in number 10 anymore. But, you know, in Mrs May's case, number one, she's just got her fingernails so dug into the door lintels of number 10 that she is not going anywhere until she's forced to. So Robert's scenario of will she bring out the pearl-handled revolver... It doesn't seem in her character to do that. That's one thing. And the other is, as you've said, what is the mechanism for actually removing her? And do they have a plan? Because a few months ago, you had a situation in which it was neither really in the hard Brexiters' interests nor in the Remainers' interests inside the cabinet to get rid of her. So you had a kind of mutually assured destruction situation that was keeping the status quo. Yeah, mutually, exactly. You know, like the nuclear standoff in the 1980s, essentially. Now, you've got this hilariously crowded field of people all declaring that they would like to be the person to take over, all trying to sort of gather support around them. But I think in a way, until both sides of that argument about the future of the Conservative Party feel that they have a plan as to how they will secure the next leadership of the Tory party, you might not get any definite moves to ouster. Because I've spoken to some more moderate Tory MPs this week who are very concerned about her Dominic Raab or Boris Johnson coming in and pushing us towards a no-deal exit. But at the same time, they just said that this stalemate just cannot go on because lest we forget the Brexit clock is still ticking. You know, the EU said do not waste time and I think we have wasted that time. Nothing has happened this week, Robert, with Brexit, that there's no sign of a fourth indicative vote. These talks with Labour are going absolutely nowhere and we keep getting told progress is being made, progress is not being made, there's going to be a deal, there's not going to be a deal. And I think there is a sense in the Conservative Party that she is now the block to whatever comes next. And maybe what comes next is worse, but this constant stalemate is not doing the party or the country any favours. Yes, I think that's absolutely right. 
we were discussing a little earlier what's going to happen in cabinet next week and a large part of me just sort of thinks well who cares what's going to happen in cabinet next week because they're just going to talk and argue and it doesn't matter because they can't enforce anything but I do believe the real issue is going to be the outcome of the European elections the Tories are currently at around 11% in the polls it seems to me entirely plausible that they will drop down to a single figure digit when the actual results come in they will finish behind the Liberal Democrats probably they will get absolutely thrashed by the Brexit party and if you're the Conservative any conservative, almost regardless of what wing you're on, you have to look at this and say, well, look, we're just dying here and we have to get our momentum back. We have to get the public listening to us again. We have to have a leader who they're interested in and we have to have some sense of strategic direction. As you say, even if it's the wrong direction at some point, you just have to look like you're a government. And so I think the position cannot go on much longer. I think the only question is whether they decide to start the clock before the European elections or my own hunches, they'll wait till after. But it is absolutely unsustainable. Because I spoke to some of the Tory MEP candidates from the doorstep who said all these things. It's terrible. We're getting doors slammed in our faces. And yes, it's Brexit, but it's also Mrs May. And this is kind of in Hampshire, Berkshire, Tory heartlands territory. And they're saying if she announced she was going before May 23rd, that might save us from total wipeout. But I feel like we've passed that point. But we have seen this week, Miranda, the Tories launched their European election campaign in a very odd way. There was no election launch. There was a leaf that went out, which had Mrs May's face on it, which again seems to have offended MEP candidates by saying if there's one thing you could have done was to make this about the Conservative brand, not about the Prime Minister. And that's exactly what they've done. And it's it's such an odd campaign because it's happening in two weeks. All the parties have launched. The Lib Dems launched it with big fanfare in an East End art venue I was at last night. Labour was down in Kent in Medway. And of course, the Brexit party's been doing these rallies of thousands of people turning out to welcome Nigel Farage as their new saviour. Well, it's completely bizarre. And actually, the governing party deciding to not really campaign in a set of elections is something we haven't seen before. It's another thing to put on our tally of the politically unprecedented events that we're living through. And that also means that the very fact that we are holding these elections on the 23rd of May is a signal of the fact that Mrs May has failed to deliver Brexit. So that's sort of terrible for the Tories anyway. And I strongly agree with Robert. I think that whatever the high politics that's going on, whatever the European diplomacy, whatever the parliamentary arithmetic of can she or can she not risk coming back for a fourth time with her withdrawal agreement, is there something that will emerge from indicative votes to resolve the Brexit standoff in Parliament? At the end of the day, a political party is an institution which needs to ensure its own survival. If you are faced with the worst result by a governing party in any set of elections in history, then you have to preserve your own organisation above all other things. So I think that that night, the results night, which I think is two days after the 23rd of May, will be the moment, actually. And Mrs May has arranged a very helpful recess after the European elections because the vote is on Thursday, May the 23rd. The results will start to come in on the Sunday evening, but it's going to be the following Monday where we're really going to get a sense. And it was announced this week there's going to be a week's recess from the Tuesday, which is very nice to give a bit of space because you can imagine the anger that Monday and Tuesday coming from Conservative MPs, Conservative ministers is going to be growing. This is old world thinking. This is the kind of thing you did when people did 
didn't have telephones. And so you could actually, oh, they won't be able to talk to each other. You know, they'll have to communicate by horse and carriage. So they won't be able to plot. I mean, we live in a different time now. The idea that Conservative MPs will not be able to communicate and plot and go on television and rail against Theresa May is just a sign of how far out of touch the organisation of this party has become. You only have to open your Sunday papers. Every Is there a kitchen sink or a pastel shirt that's not been deployed in this country? And re- almost every member of the Conservative Party is running for the leadership. They're all busy plotting their own campaigns. People who could not possibly hope to attract more than five or six votes in this contest are planning the leadership campaigns. The party is not actually functioning as a government. We have passed the point of no return. The only issue is when Theresa May gives up the ghost on this. And they will be under pressure, all those Tory MPs, in that wits and recess, which is supposed to be this kind of cordon sanitaire to stop them stabbing Mrs May in the back, will, as Robert says, turn into something completely different. They'll be lobbied on the side of, you know, their local activists and their local committee chairmen and women who will be saying this is appalling. Look at how we got a drubbing in the local elections. Look now, we've been humiliated in the European elections. You must act. And also, even the more sensible ones will be thinking, how have we come to this point that our support in the country at large is so low. We don't, as Robert said, look like a government that has any sort of grip. And if you're the Conservative Party and you're supposed to be the default party of government, you should really show that you're able to govern even in difficult times. And finally, Robert, just to flip back to what's going on in Parliament for a moment with the state of Brexit, because we've had these talks going on with Labour and the Conservatives that I mentioned before. Nobody I've spoken to seems to think there is going to be a formal deal. There's not going to be what's called the Rose Garden moment where Jeremy Corbyn and Theresa May stand side by side and say, vegetable patch packed. We've done a deal. (laughs) This is going to get this through and we're going to get on with our lives. That's not going to happen because it's not in the political interests of either party. What there might be is some kind of agreement on how to take this thing forward and there has been that sense from number 10 that the second reading of the withdrawal bill is going to be brought forward. If there was going to be some kind of deal, you'd think it would have to be Labour abstains on the second reading of the bill and then amends it with a customs union. And I don't see how that doesn't pass now because the numbers were almost there last time. They're almost certainly going to be there this time. Then it goes on to a question of, do you get a confirmatory second referendum attached to it at that point? And the numbers, even in that case, are still going to be very tight because there's going to be a lot of Conservatives, a lot more than the 28 who didn't vote for it last time, who are going to be against it. Plus a lot of Labour because there's been a growing support for a clear second referendum on that side as well. So whether Mrs May brings back the Whitall agreement before the European elections or after, it still looks like it's going to be a complete mess and it's not going to break the stalemate. I think that's broadly right. I mean, I spoke to somebody just before the local election results who's been involved in the talks heavily and he said he thought they would... If they couldn't reach an actual deal with the Labour Party in the next week, they would then move towards this process of trying to reach an agreement with Labour on a process which said, if we follow this path and Parliament votes for this, we too, the two governing parties, will work together to ensure the legislation passes. And that would be indicative votes on different processes, as you say, customs union or maybe a referendum or whatever. I'm not sure that I'm hearing Labour even being up for that at the moment. And the government has extended the deadline for that into its idea of going on till July, potentially. So I think the announcements coming out of Downing Street are largely displacement activity. They attempt to show there are things being done and that it is worth sticking with it. It's also worth remembering that the one thing that Theresa May has, which might be sort of 
softening the cries from the parties. The people around her, many of them, depend on her for their position. So one reason someone said to me why a lot of the cabinet won't turn on her is because they know they won't be in the next cabinet. You know, the people who are around her in Downing Street, they depend on her for their jobs. So she will be hearing advice from people saying, no, you can fight this out. You can't go without a legacy. You've got to get this agreement through. And all of the sort of soft Brexit wing of the party also want to see the first stage done before a leadership contest. So there are vested interests in trying to keep her there. What I can't see at the moment is a vested interest for Jeremy Corbyn in taking a settled position on this. His own party is in a bit of foment on this. He has been pushing back on finally supporting a referendum. The Labour Party is in a greatly difficult position on this. So the easiest place for him to be at the moment is not too definitive. Labour will be in difficulties over the position that they've been unable to take on either side of this argument, it's true. And also I think there are still huge problems with the idea of a confirmatory referendum because you've got enemies of the deal on both sides, on the Brexity side and on the Remain side. And it could easily go down if it was put to the public, in which case you haven't really solved either the splits or the position in either of the main parties could have no deal in the referendum. No, no, that's right. But, you know, that whole process and how you make it both fair, democratic and a solution to the impasse is really hard to see. Universal basic income is a radical idea that would give every citizen a flat rate of payment instead of benefits. It's an idea that's been kicking around for several decades, but has gained traction recently after some trials in Finland. Now the Labour Party in the UK is taking a keen interest. John McDonnell, the Shadow Chancellor, welcomed a new report this week onto the feasibility of UBI. So will Labour endorse it at the next general election? And would it end up helping or hindering inequality. Chris Charles, can you begin by just explaining what UBI is all about? There's a lot of buzz around it in radical Labour circles at the moment. John McDonnell has talked about it in general terms in the past, but this week he really came quite close to saying this is something Labour should actually back in its next manifesto. Yes, he didn't quite back it, but it's definitely something that Labour is thinking about. It's not the first time Labour has thought about it, or even the Conservatives in the 1970s had a very similar idea. It comes and goes as a policy. Now, that doesn't mean it's a bad idea or a stupid idea, but we should understand what it is and what it isn't. Basically, if you give a reasonable amount of money to everyone, men, women, children only on the condition that they live in Britain, so there's no other, so it's easy. It's a little bit like child benefit used to be. That's the idea, and then you have to take it away again because doing that is very expensive. So if you do it at a reasonable level, let's say the level of current Social Security benefits, sort of universal credit, so that those people wouldn't be worse off, then it would cost around, in addition to what you spend now, up to around £300 billion. This is not small money, this is unbelievably large money. You'd get some back because you wouldn't have to pay the universal credit you pay now. But we're talking in the sort of region of £150 billion of tax increases to fund it. And why would you do that? Well, the advocates say it just gets rid of means testing entirely. So all the demeaning aspects of having your family circumstances looked into would just disappear. And that would make everyone basically a happier place and willing to pay the additional tax. 
So, Jim Picard, Labour obviously likes this idea because it's radical, it speaks to their vision of society, but as Chris Giles has said, it's a very expensive proposal and obviously this is something you could see them backing, but you do get the sense Labour is moving towards it. And you were at the launch event where John McDonnell spoke with Professor Guy Standing, who is one of the most ardent advocates of a UBI. What was that event like and what was the language from Labour on this? Yeah, so I was at the morning event early this week at the RSA on London's embankment. The first thing to mention is I would say John McDonnell hasn't exactly embraced it with great enthusiasm. He used the phrase useful contribution. It's a useful contribution to the debate. And I think... What he wants to do is he wants to show that there is thinking going on on the left. He wants people to think that Britain's left-wingers are not just talking back to the 70s with sort of things like nationalisation, that they are taking seriously some of the more radical ideas now out there in the ether. For example, having a four-day week, that's something he has taken quite seriously. I asked him the question at this event. Now, Guy Standing in his report said that his own personal recommendation, Guy Stanning's recommendation, is that you'd raise the money to fund this by a series of new taxes like extra environmental taxes, land taxes. He said another way of doing it is you could scrap a whole load of tax allowances. And then the other thing he said is you could have a very tiny wealth tax on everybody and that could raise some of the billions you'd need for this. But when I asked the question of John McDonnell, you know, what do you make of Guy Standing's tax raising ideas, he kind of went into robotic mode of just talking about what was in the 2017 manifesto in terms of the tax rises. He wants to engage with the philosophical idea of this. He doesn't want to engage into how one might pay for it. Just to be fair, Guy Standing did say, and Chris might disagree with this, Guy Standing thinks that you could do this in a fiscally neutral manner. And he thinks to be done properly, you need to raise taxes, but he thinks it could be done without any tax rises. Is that even feasible? Well, to the extent you can have a universal basic income without tax rises, it'll just be at such a low level that there'll be loads of losers. Because the fundamental issue you've got, if you give money to everyone, regardless of their income, currently we have a targeted or means-tested system. So you're going to give quite a lot of money to wealthy people who currently get nothing. And that's where the extra cost comes from. And people you currently give money to don't get it. That would be the fiscally neutral no tax increase way, but you're going to increase poverty a lot if you do that and you're going to make you and me better off for no massively important purpose. He says in his report that you would have a higher level of income tax to claw back the the money given to people who didn't deserve it. So that is the general idea of how most people, when they're modelling it, work. And I put in the paper some really good modelling done by people at the University of Bath and that is exactly what they did. So essentially what you do is you give people this 288, call it 300 billion, and then you claw it back. That means there's no personal allowance on income tax. You pay income tax on the first pound. Income tax rates are between 5 and 10 percentage points higher than now. So the 20% rate will be 25, let's say. The 40 will be 45. And you have national insurance going all the way up the income scale. So in doing that, it is redistributive. It would take a lot of money off richer people and give it to poorer people. But Very crucially, and this is one of the real problems, if you give a flat rate payment to everybody, that means people who currently get additional payments, say, for disabilities or for housing costs, don't get it. And so the simplicity of it, uh, you know, the reason we have a complex system is because life is complex. And if you go for a very simple system, then unfortunately poverty tends to rise and inequality gets worse, not better. 
The critics of universal basic income, Chris, both in the Labour Party and in the right of British politics, say that this will act as a disincentive to work, that if you're getting this universal basic income for everyone, then lots of people just not bother trying to find jobs and will try and live off that. And in the past, some figures in Labour have said this would allow people to express themselves creatively and do things such as being artists or poets professions or jobs that tend to not actually create a lot of economic benefit. Is that fair? Would it disincentivize people to work? The theory here is inconclusive. The practice in Finland, where we had a very small study, was also inconclusive. But when you think about the incentives created, it's almost certainly the case that you would have negative labour supply consequences. Just think about this. If you are someone who is married or in a partnership with someone else, let's say with someone working on average earnings of about £30,000, and the second earner is working 20 hours a week at £10 an hour, just above the minimum wage, so getting £10,000, if your universal basic income was around the £6,000 mark per person, so you could either work 20 hours a week in a dead-end job getting 10000 or you could do whatever you like and still get 6000 Well, you know, a lot of people might make that choice. Not everyone, but a lot of people. And the moment you get people moving down hours, you lose a lot of tax revenue and it gets even more expensive. And that's why people have been very, very cautious about doing this in practice. The politics of this, Jim, are pretty interesting because this would have been unthinkable five years within the Labour Party that this kind of policy would be something it would be pursuing. But obviously... Ever since Jeremy Corbyn became leader in 2015, it's become more radical. And particularly since the 2017 general election, when they put forward a manifesto that, yes, was pretty left wing, but the party was very keen to say it was within the bounds of social democratic parties within most European countries. They have been getting more radical. John McDonnell himself has been talking about nationalising more and more things. So water, mail, rail, energy, bit by bit, they're looking at growing the state in different ways. And it's struck me seeing the response to that guy standing report and your report to the UBI event that before we get to the next general election, Labour's economic policies are just going to get more and more radical because they believe they're winning the argument and the lack of any you know, sense from the Conservatives they can offer an alternative is just dying away so they can push for things like the four-day week and universal basic income because more Britons feel that the economy isn't working for them and this might be the solution, even if it is very expensive and very radical. Yeah, the thing about the universal basic income is I didn't see why it wouldn't be within the norms of a pretty regular social democracy. It just seems like a very extravagant, chaotic, potentially displacement activity, like throwing everything up in the air and remaking it in a way that, as Chris has elegantly explained, creates lots of winners and losers. For us to end up roughly where we are now, except you get rid of means testing, and a lot of people don't like means testing, but it seems like you're going through an awful lot of change to get somewhere quite similar but you know for a lot of people in Corbyn's inner circle and John McDonnell they take very seriously the horror stories that have emerged from the welfare system on means testing they've all watched the film I Daniel Blake which is quite a sort of totemic movie for people in that circle and they see it as a great injustice to take your wider point about whether they're getting more radical since 2017 I think yeah they do want to show that they haven't stopped thinking and experimenting since then it's just that a lot of the ideas they floated like universal basic income four day week and even the 10 percent share scheme none of that is quite set in stone yet so in terms of written down agreed policy i would say labor is still where they were at the 17th election and the 10 percent. let's go back to the 10 percent 
share policy. I think it's the most radical idea that anyone's come up with in decades. And I find it astonishing that people aren't talking about it much more than they are. But maybe that's Brexit for you. One thing that's really interesting here, Jim just put his finger on it, is that actually there hasn't been the big serious analysis of Labour's plans, partly because they haven't quite said they're going to do things. They're just floating ideas at the moment. And in the 17 election, there just wasn't the same sort of really rigorous looking at Labour's economic plans that there often has been in previous elections. I think mostly because people didn't really think Labour was going to do that well. And so there wasn't a lot of point. And so they, in some sense, got away with it. Uh, I I would make a different case, which is that the Conservatives didn't really attack with much yes. firepower these economic ideas because the Tories don't seem to have that much self-confidence that their free market ideas are the right solutions for the world we find ourselves in. And so things like John McDonnell suggesting that workers will seize £500 billion worth of shares, more or less, it was met with virtual silence from CCHQ. And I remember, Chris, you know, talking to Philip Hammond about this and he was saying, you know, the issue is... These guys are on such a different planet in terms of their economic policy that when Ed Balls was the shadow chancellor, they were still within the kind of same boundaries of trying to balance the deficit and trying not to increase taxation too much but a little bit. Whereas the sort of stuff we're talking about now is so far away. If you're the Conservatives, how do you even create a case against that when they're just sort of going entirely past each other? Yes, it's entirely the opposite of New Labour in the 90s where New Labour basically said they would do nothing and then in government were actually quite radical over time. Whereas now we get out of government, the Labour Party saying it's going to be incredibly radical and we still don't really know what it would do in government. Although the tax changes they've set out, let's not forget tax changes of a very large order of magnitude, both on businesses and on the well-off in 17, you know, to fund a very large splurge in public spending. They were quite honest about roughly what they were doing and, and it did break the consensus that we've had for a very long time. And that's it for this week's episode. Thank you to Robert, Miranda, Jim and Chris for joining us. In the meantime, if you've enjoyed what you've heard, then you can check out some more FT journalism by signing up to our latest subscription offers, which you can find at ft.com forward slash offer. FT Politics was presented by me, Sebastian Payne, and produced by Anna Dedda. Until next time, thanks for listening. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.